Scunthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold and a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a third. He's got it! 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal! A perfect score. 10.0 for Dante Cavanici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen this so in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record, 9.68. The wind is okay. How easy was that? Hello and welcome once again to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast as we bring you yet another one of our special episodes, our interview series, and we speak to past, present, and I guess future Olympians too, because given Colin, myself and Jared are all future Olympians, but uh, very excited right now to uh, to have this guest on our show, and this is kind of a bit of internal fanboying going on for this interview, Zali Stegel. She is an Australian uh, skier in the in the alpine skiing discipline, focusing mainly on the slalom event, an event that she did win bronze in Nagano in 1998. And as you'll find out throughout this interview, I, I guess for some of our listeners, particularly outside of Australia, those in Canada might be thinking, well, so what? She won bronze. You know, that's, that's not that special. For Australia, it is incredibly special because this was the very first Winter Olympic medal won by an individual, the very first Winter Olympic medal won by a female athlete from, from Australia. And really, as you'll find out in this interview, set a new standards for Olympic sports, uh, Winter Olympic sports moving forward in this country. And it's an incredible story to hear Zali talk about just where Olympic winter sports were in this country when she first entered the the arena and to where they are today and it certainly is a a very fascinating wide-ranging chat and uh, as I said fanboying I, I I watched this live when I was 11 years old and remember it very fondly to this day and you'll find out that I still have this on VHS I still watch it every now and then and uh, certainly one of my favorite sporting moments growing up and one that uh, you know it's it's amazing that I'm here speaking well I'm about to at least speak to Zali Stegel and you don't want to hear me speak anymore you want to hear Zali so without further ado here is the off the podium interview with 1998 Winter Olympic medalist Zali Stegel. Huge pleasure right now to be able to welcome our next guest to this show. She became the first individual Australian athlete to win a Winter Olympic medal back in 1998 in Slalom when she won bronze in Nagano. And uh, not only has she had an outstanding career in the sport of skiing, she's also now got an even more outstanding career in the the legal firm practice, uh, just doing great guns out there in the world. Please welcome to the program today, Zali Stegel. Zali, huge honour to have you here on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, um, I just mentioned to you off air, it's a bit of a fanboy moment for me to be able to do this. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an honour. I mean, it's, it's kind of also crazy that in, in prepping for this interview to realise that next year will be 20 years since you won that bronze medal. I mean, that, that's oh, kind of scary, yeah. is it, not to think that it's been two decades now. It is, and it's it's amazing. I think when you're growing up, so much of you know your I think your childhood goes 
uh, sort of slowly in a sense that it sort of you know you're a kid for a long time in your mind <laughs> <laughs> and uh look it felt like it was such a long journey to get to the top uh and then those years where it all came together for me with Nagano and then the world champs um and to think that that's been 20 years ago and that you know it was pretty much 20 years in the making and it's been 20 years since so it, it is quite amazing how time flies but look it's um there's certainly great turning points in my life well I mean you had such an uh, an interesting upbringing I guess because I, I know kind of when you won the medal and and sort of the world championships it was always kind of touted like you know this girl from manly has gone on and you know anyone who's listening to this who might be out of outside of Australia not know much you know manly beautiful beaches beautiful part of Sydney and you know it, it's a, it's a great story a girl from manly going on to win a winter Olympic medal but of course you grew up uh, you know from a very young age in, in France where where I'm guessing you know living in the French Alps you're kind of surrounded by snow so you know skiing I guess therefore is part of life whereas in Manly it's not really going to be that much part of life I mean is that <laughs> is that what drew you then to skiing kind of that lifestyle in, in the French Alps yeah, look, look, I was a very sporty kid, to be fair. I was very competitive, and pretty much every sport I touched, I got good at because I was very athletic and then very determined to win. You know, I had, I had that mongrel in me. So, look, I, I did try a lot of different sports, but we, my parents went to live in the French Alps when I was four, and uh, we stayed there for about 10 years till I was 14. And then when we left as a teenager, I was very much at that turning point in the skiing career where I had skied um, in the under-15 sort of junior ranks until then. Uh, but once you turned 15, you became sort of, you went into sort of the international uh, rankings and you had to ski for your nationality. And that was a turning point where my parents sort of felt that it was time to come back to Australia and ski for Australia. And of course, that sort of meant, um, you know, it, it sort of, <laughs> I don't know if they quite realised just you know, what it was going to mean and how much travel and the commitment it was going to take. But, um, look, I had that, I was lucky to have that upbringing of living in the ski resort where uh, it was a natural choice just as for a manly kid, it's a natural choice to go maybe into surfing or swimming. Yeah. <laughs> it's possibly a little easier. Yeah, and, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, being sporty, I mean, sporting family as well, obviously, your, your grandfather playing for the Wallabies, Zeke, I mean, you know, pretty handy snowboarder in his own right. I mean, what were some of the other sports then, I guess, that you sort of were trying or was it a case of what sports did I not try when I was growing up? I was. It was a bit that way. Look, uh, I think maybe the younger sister syndrome as well that I was pretty keen to take on my brother on pretty much everything. So, <laughs> uh, look, I did, growing up in France, I used to do cross-country running. I did tennis, I did judo, did swimming. Uh, I did windsurfing quite competitively, actually, right up until when I was 14. Wow. I actually came third at the French Championships in windsurfing. Wow. <laughs> so, um, I, I, definitely, I definitely did have that. I have a very, very competitive, even figure skating, I skating would you believe which thankfully I got told when I was about nine but maybe I was going to become a bit too big so that's <laughs> best to pick a different sport um, but yeah look I, I was very very athletic very competitive and really lucky that look I my parents are very keen sports people very active in their own lives uh, with a sporting history anyway you know with my grandfather and my father played um, at premiership level in rugby as well so they were very keen on the whole idea that they encouraged their kids to have a go and facilitate whatever it is that we were keen in. Uh, so when Zeke went from skiing to snowboarding, they really um, supported that. And then it was always about just, you know, making sort of sport, participating in top-level sport is for when you're young. You can't really put it off for most sports. Um, so they were really keen to facilitate that 
sort of opportunity to follow your dream. And um, uh, so I was very lucky in that sense that they could do that. Well, you mentioned, uh, obviously, when you were 15 about how you had to, you know, ski for, for your country of birth. I mean, I, I believe you were actually a member of the French junior skiing team at one point. I mean, was that ever an option that, I guess, if you, uh, I suppose you would have to become a French citizen, would you not? I mean, was there that option that you could have skied for France instead of Australia? Yeah, look, it was there. Um, I was top three in France, and so um, there was the offer that if I stayed skiing in France, um, that I had to sign up, that they would keep paying for me and take me on board as a French kid, but um, but when I turned 18, I needed to change my nationality in right. France. Um, that was something that was a bit too big a commitment for mum and dad. That I don't think they'd quite, you know, they couldn't quite see that that was beyond what the plan had sort of been. <laughs> um, and so they didn't think that that was sort of a commitment we could make at that time. And look, I don't think anyone, we didn't really have a plan at that point that where was it going to go and and we didn't really know what skiing in Australia was going to be like. So what, you know, how developed the racing was or what support there was. So it was all a bit of a, a leap of faith when we then we came back and sort of I started skiing for Australia and working out the system. And look, it took me a couple of years, if it took me a few years to work out coaching and travel and, and and putting in place the support network that you need, which I automatically had in France. But that's part of the learning curve as well, of having to be a bit more hands-on in in that sort of coaching structure and your team team structure around you. Um, but look, yeah, I mean, you'd be you may you probably wouldn't know this, but there's actually a, a, a half Australian girl that lives in France, Tessa Worley, who's actually lived in France all her life. I think she's got a French mum and a, an Australian dad, uh, but she's recently won the world championships in giant slalom. So see, well, there are only live abroad. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. That's what we want to hear. We want to, you know, we want to keep hearing about this success out there because, I mean, it's. As you were kind of mentioning about when you come back to Australia and not knowing, because, I mean, this is obviously, you know, late 80s, leading into the early 90s at this point, and, you know, Australia at this point never had even won an, a Winter Olympic medal. And I can't imagine that, you know, when you're, you're learning and getting these coaches and everything about the, just the differences that you would feel skiing in Australia to compare to, no doubt, all that, uh, you know, background funding and everything they've got in France... Did that become a real shock to you growing up then in Australia and getting used to the Australian system of things when you were used to it all in France? Yeah, look, it was definitely a, a steep learning curve. Like, I came back to Australia, I was 14, um, year 10 at school, so I had to get used to schooling in English, which was very different. Uh, had to get used to living in a city compared to a mountain ski resort, um, and then all of a sudden had to travel down from, you know, I went to Queenwood and Northern Beaches in Sydney, and all of a sudden I had to travel down every weekend to the snow to Perisha Race Club, and found that, you know, we didn't really have regional teams, or, or the national team wasn't, it was really a, only a men's team at the time, and um, as a 15-year-old, I won pretty much my first races against all the senior girls. So that was a bit of a, a shock as well that I wasn't, ex- you know, I shouldn't have been winning. There should have been older girls better than me. So, again, sort of that hierarchy was swiveled around. And um, I went from a system in France where I had fitness coaches in the off-season and I had good equipment and all that to all of a sudden I'd be catching the bus home from school, you know, to Manly and going to Manly Oval and sort of setting myself some drills and doing my training on my own or finding, you know, I found an athletics coach and I found a weights coach. And it was a bit trial and error for many years. So I sort of attribute that that it took me about seven years to sort of crack it in terms of getting, you know, from a junior ranks. And it, it probably took me a little bit longer to get to the top because I had to really persevere through, you know, there just wasn't much funding at the time either. So you really didn't have much, uh, 
um, you know, no national teams to go overseas in terms of um, full-time coaches and stuff like that. So it was trial and error, but I, I always do put down that it was such a steep learning curve and I had to be so hands-on in that process that it definitely made me own the result, that I, I was very involved. Um, there was no spoiled athlete <laughs> with everything being done for her. Like, so, I, you know, I had some amazing adventures as a 17, 18-year-old stuck in Europe. And, and what kids don't realise these days is before the era of mobile phones and internet. So you were very much out there on your own, out of, out of communication. Um, so very different experience. I look back on it now and, you know, it's, it's such a different experience to what you have these days with the internet and there's so much more connected. Um, there's, there's, it would make so many things so much easier from a travel point of view. Uh, whereas, um, and studying, you know, I, I quit halfway through my HSC to go to my first Olympics. Um, I used to study by faxing my, um, faxing my wow. time, um, you know, getting to a hotel and having to hand over the fax number to send stuff back to, uh, once I was at uni, you know, again, and, and, you know, kids these days would think they won't a fax. Yeah. <laughs> that would be unheard of. That's crazy. That's crazy to think that. And, I mean, it's it's so. This is where I think like your career is so fascinating with all these aspects because, you know, I, I, we have a, a large contingent of our listeners are, are from Canada because one of our co-hosts is is Canadian and he's sort of co-doing these interviews with me, but also interviewing Canadian athletes. And obviously, for Canadians, you yeah. know, we're talking about winter sports for them. This is to us like I guess what swimming is and sort of our our summer sport. So it's kind of the reverse of what they're used to. And, and this is why you know it's just it's it's so fascinating everything that you're talking about and going through there because I can also imagine then when you're competing in these events sort of even in the lead up to your first Olympics in 92 it's that they're seeing an Australian competing in a sport which is dominated by you know the Europeans you know the Americans the Canadians and does that how does that work for you do do they look at you differently do they think oh she's just an Australian she's not going to threaten us and does that help you kind of going in as an underdog or or are you kind of still looked at respected I guess in a way because it's like well we don't know what she's going to do she grew up in France she's got this you know European mentality how does that how does that work in those early days well, it was, it was that mix in the sense that you're not really expected to be a threat because countries like Australia don't really produce um, top alpine skiers. So it wasn't, uh, in those, especially in those days, there really hadn't been much from the southern hemisphere. So we'd had a few skiers, you know, like Stevie Lee and Malcolm Milne, but it wasn't a consistent thing. So it was one of those, um, no, there wasn't that expectation. But because I had grown up in Europe, I certainly put the expectation on myself and I considered myself to be, I, I don't think I ever thought of myself as European versus as Australian, I just considered myself to be a skier and a worldly skier. So <laughs> I was in my element over there. And look, I spoke, you know, fluent French. I speak fluent French. Spoke German. So I was at home on the circuit with the other girls. So it's not like I was isolated, you know, with a language barrier. But the big difference for the European and North American girls compared to me was they got to go home. So in between races, you know, they'd go home for Christmas. They'd go and do training camps. And if you're having, if you've had a bad race, to be able to go home and recalibrate, go back to training, you know, get a bit of support, family and friends. It really makes a huge difference. For me, that was probably the biggest differentiator between the, the other girls and me was that I had nowhere to go. You know, I'd go back to where I grew up in France or go back to Austria and you'd go back to your sort of your accommodation for the season, little apartment and um, you just you permanently only had your coaches and, and the rest of the team around. You never had family, friends. So it, it was just much, much harder to 
find a balance while you were over there. And, and in those days, you know, TV was all in Austria, all in German, <laughs> everything was in Austrian. There was a treat if you could find an English, a movie in English. Um, and it's not like it's like now where you've got the internet and Facebook and you've got all those, all the social media means to stay connected so that they wouldn't have that isolation and the sort of, because one of the factors that I found tremendously hard was the loneliness of the circuit because I had great friends on the circuit and the girls were, you know, great friends in the German team and French team and US teams, but it's not, you know, I didn't get to go home the way they did. So they're the aspects that probably were were the hardest. But I I had known all the girls for so many years and like the French girls, I'd grown up with them. So I wasn't this unknown Australian that sort of, you know, tropical, uh, they kind of knew me. And and as soon as you get results, you get respect for the results you produce. So um, that that side of it was... um, you know, but but it takes years to gain respect as well um, when you're from an, sort of a, maybe an underdog nation. Um, and and I certainly always felt that you you know you need to earn the respect and you need to to put the runs on the board to to get it. And, and I mean, the alpine sport, uh, alpine skiing. Sorry, I mean it's it's a fascinating sport in terms of the different uh, categories and the different events. You know, obviously, you know the super fast super G, the super fast downhill, right through to the technicalities of of the slalom, the giant slalom. You got the Mind. I mean, what is it then, I guess, about the slalom that drew you to it? Because, I mean, I can imagine that some people would look at alpine skiing and go, I want to go super fast, that's my goal. I don't want to bang into sticks and uh, have the technicality of, uh, you know, the the, precis- the precision involved in, in slalom. Was, there a particular, was it just a case you were better at it or th- there was something more about it that you liked rather than something like the downhill? Yeah, look, uh, I find the best way of sort of explaining it to people is giving them sort of an athletics comparison of, you know, why does someone pick to be the 100-metre sprint versus 200-metre sprint versus maybe the 400 or the 1,500 or 5,000 metres? I think, you know, you develop... Um, some people are better suited to different events. Um, Australia doesn't, we've got, we've had downhill skiers, but we don't actually have downhill runs. So you don't really have the training facilities for speed. Speed requires more coaches because your run is longer and there's more safety involved. So you need more coaches on the hill. So that was automatically a pretty big bar for us from Australia because couldn't afford to have two, three coaches on the hill, you know, like it just took more manpower. Um, and then, look, in those days, we had there was a great skier from um, New Zealand, Annalisa Koberger, who's a great friend of mine, and uh, she was skiing slalom only. So for me, it was an you know, economy of scale by being able to join up with other small teams. So for me, it meant that I could train slalom really well and really easily by training with her. So I actually did all four disciplines right up until the 94 Olympics. Uh, in Lillehammer where I still did the downhill and the combined um, but at that point look I was 19 and I thought look I can I, it was a very conscious choice I was already getting my better results were always in the slalom um, I wasn't a bad skier in GS and downhill and ironically I think you know downhill my, my I'm a big big tall girl so the downhill probably would have suited me but the fact that just the facility of training, the easiness was, the ease was, was with slalom. And I got to those Olympics in 94 where I was quite a, a disappointed with my performances. And then I sort of went, well, look, I've really got to pick because I don't want to be average at everything. I can be sort of good at everything or I want to try and really be great at one thing. Uh, and I, I guess I had that example of Annalisa where she had won a, the first ever Southern Hemisphere medal. She won the silver medal in the slalom in Albeville. And I thought, you know what, it is possible. You can do it, but you actually have to focus. You have to 
pick one and make it your be excellent at it. And so that became very much my focus for the next four years was I just I dropped all the downhill events, all the speed events. I didn't do much GS either and I just did slalom. So it meant that you know, it's a sport where it's repetition. That's how many, you know, you know, everyone jokes about the 10,000 hours and how many, um, just how much training and how much practice will make you great at something. Well, look, I was training, you know, just nonstop slalom technical. So you, in your sensory bank, um, where you're practicing um, all kinds of different patterns of gates and steepness and soft, you know, different snow conditions, different gradient on the hills, different types of sets between the gates. You're just accumulating so much more experience that when it, then you get to a race, you're really on top of your game. And so I found that by doing that, I really sort of could be very focused on what I was doing and I think like a sprinter you know why is a sprinter better over 100 meters than 200 (laughs) meters you know that's just the one the it's a distance that suits your physical attributes and I found uh, slalom suited me I liked the quickness the reactiveness Um, I liked it when it was steep and icy and really technical so for me that that all worked for me um, so, and, and you know, I think one thing leads to another, and the results follow, and so you you sort of go down that road. Um, and, and you know, once you become good at it, um, then it, then then you sort of start to widen your focus again and think, okay, well, should I come back to doing a bit more GS and a bit more skiing? And I probably would have benefited from rebroadening a bit more and having a bit more, um, uh, you know, a bit of variety in there. Uh, but, you know, chicken and the egg, uh, you need to get the results to get the attention, to get the sponsors, to be able to afford to do it and to, you know, have the programs. So you need to actually just, uh, I'm a firm believer that you just have to narrow down your focus and really excel at one thing because then if you get success, then you get the sponsors and you get the support and then you can start broadening broadening your focus again. And um, look, I, you know, I guess it's a formula that works for me anyway. Well, I mean, it's something that I definitely want to talk about a little bit later in this interview, but but, I mean, if you, if you look at, go back to, to Albeville, your first games, you're 18. The, the Australian team at that point was only 21 athletes. Yet two years ago, or three years ago now, in, in Sochi, we had 61. I mean, in, in 22 years, that's how far, I guess, winter sports in this country has come and how much it's changed. I mean, you obviously ended your career in, in Salt Lake. And, and at that point, uh, you know, back-to-back Olympics, we'd won medals in. And obviously, Salt Lake, we'd go on to win two gold. But did you find that, I guess, across your 10-year Winter Olympic career that your first games, 21 athletes, Salt Lake, fast forward, where we're medal chances, there was that vibe that changed. I mean, what's that vibe like in 1992 amongst Australia, given that we hadn't had that success, but we're, we're that close, I guess, to achieving it? Look, yeah, the, the, the teams, I think, have changed and our level of professionalism has changed. Like, there's no doubt that uh, back in 92, you know, there were, I think in those days, I mean, Kirsty Marshall was our best hope, I think. I actually know it was a demonstration sport. It was only in 94 it became a sport. Um, so, look, no, we didn't really have any medal prospects and everyone was there to sort of do the best. But, uh, look, I don't want to be insulting in terms of, um, it's not an amateurish team, but it's not a team where I, d- I wouldn't say the prep of the team is up to scratch compared to the other nations in terms of the competitive nations. Look, uh, I remember the 94 Olympics um, in Lillehammer. I-, I had to pay the excess luggage to take my skis to the Olympics, wow. you know, from flying from Europe to, 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 to Lillehammer. So that's the difference, I guess, of, of, you know, the facilities and the focus on what you're really trying to achieve. 
Um, it just wasn't the same kind of structure. Uh, after the 94 games is when we got a bit more funding. We got a sort of an in-ski institute in place and we had the next few years a bit more of a professional program where we had that opportunity of having full-time coaching and actually putting in place some, some programs. So by the time we got to the 98 Olympics, we really had sort of three and a half years under our belt of a much more professional setup when it came to certain winter sports. It wasn't, you know, and again, the funding didn't go far enough to cover everybody, but it certainly, we, we certainly had, you know, a much more professional approach to my program, the Alpine program and the aerials program was definitely um, a lot tighter and same for the um, short track speed skating because they had won the relay medal in 94. Yeah. So we did come already, by the time we came to the 98 games, it was already definitely a step up in terms of preparation and professionalism uh, in how you know the team was there and we were there I think with probably more purpose more 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 purpose to be there for a medal rather than just be there for the sake of being there um, and I think look from and, and I think then if you look at from year to year it has only gone up you know it's progressed like I'm a, I've been on and off and I am again at the moment a director of the Olympic Winter Institute so that was uh, so initially it was a ski institute um, based out of Mount Buller and then that got uh, after the 98 games that got rebranded into the Olympic Winter Institute and that's very much as the winter elite level branch of the Australian Olympic Committee um, to take over that running of those programs that were expected to be of medal medal quality performances come Olympic game time, um, and that's uh, and that's really what's paid off. If you look at then the growth of the OWIA from you know ninety eight two thousand and two, you've got the two gold medals and you know a really strong performance. Two thousand and six again with the moguls, the aerials still going strong, the speed skating. Um, you've really got that growth of depth of the programs, um, and uh, and look, we've just come off a fantastic season overseas where. Um, and look, and the other thing about the growth of our numbers is there's been new sports introduced into the games as well. So you've got, for example, 98 was the first year that snowboarding was at the Winter Olympics. Uh, and that in those days, it was just a giant slalom and the half pipe. Uh, then in 2002, they introduced the, um, uh, was it, two, no, it was in 2006 that so they introduced the border cross. Um, and then 2010 is when you started getting a few more events and then last Winter Olympics, we've got all the slope-style events, um, and now you've got ski-across events. Actually, Vancouver, um, you already had Vancouver, you already had the ski-across events. So you've, you've, it, it, the, the introduction of all those sort of new, younger sports does give the opportunity to cut to sort of younger ski nations like Australia to get in there to, you know, we tend to have that younger um, athlete population that wants to get into the new, the fun sports that, that, that are a little bit more exciting maybe. Um, and so we have fantastic representation. I mean, we've just gotten, um, this year we've had Britt Cox who um, on the mogul, she's won pretty much every event on World Cup and won the World Champs. Um, we've won the half pipe. We've gotten the, I think it was a bronze at the World Champs for, um, Alex uh, pulling on the uh, border cross. So we've had a fantastic year. Like it's really set the tone, I guess, for next year for, for the winter Olympics. Yeah. And it's, it's, this is a fascinating thing with all of these two Zalis. I mean, you, you mentioned obviously Kirstie Marshall. I mean, I remember 94, sort of all that kind of expectations that went into that. And then it seemed to be, you know, every year. And I mean, I remember, I guess, that bronze in 94. I remember your bronze. And I mean, again, it was such celebration for Australia. This was so, such a big deal that we were happy with one bronze. And, you know, rewind back to Sochi when we had all this, it's it's kind of almost now like, 
like we go into Winter Olympics almost like the Summer Olympics where there's high expectations and we end up being disappointed. I mean, obviously, we didn't win any gold in, in, in Sochi, so people felt disappointed. But, I mean, I'm still coming from this, this age where I grew up in the, you know, the 90s remembering how good it was to win a bronze. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, we've won a couple of silvers and a bronze. Celebrate this, guys. This is the Winter Olympics. This should still be such a big deal. It's kind of strange how it's come to that point where we're disappointed we don't win gold now. Yeah, look, and I, I, I must say I don't like that because I, even for the summer Olympics, I think, unfortunately, the way I always viewed the Olympics is you've got, you know, 50, 60 people taking the start and you've got three people are going to walk away happy from this day, okay? There's only three. So let me tell you, any colour is a good colour because it's better than no colour at all. So I always sort of felt like, you know what, you're so privileged if you can just make it onto that podium that it really, it's icing on the cake what colour it is, but at the end of the day, it's that privilege of being there because fourth place is sitting with nothing you know it's it, thanks for coming so i yeah look I'm, I'm not a fan of that focus of what the you know that that has to be gold and then that the, the expectations are so tied to results um sport is not like um i don't know a business venture where you invest a certain amount of money and you you know depending on what kind of risk risk assessment you've got as to what the outcome can be you've got a certain expectation as to what the outcome should be sport just doesn't work like that sport you, know, you can be the favorite going in but a little bit of bad luck or somebody else having a great day and people will always pull off the most amazing performances at the you know when it counts when it's a big event that it there is that level of unexpected you know you can't predict uh, you know the outcome and so um, I always find it such a it's a little bit disappointing when even like for the summer games just because you go in favorite does not guarantee you the outcome and uh, to um, for the public or maybe the the expectation to be so tied to the result uh, to the medals only I think it bypasses so many fantastic stories of amazing accomplishment yep. because people will Absolutely. You know, sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for, you know, I'll cry at amazing stories of, you know, courage and dig deep. And I love the stories of the people that have fallen over but kept going or the, the ones that have, you know, shown amazing, amazing sportsmanship by helping out somebody else or, you know, putting somebody else in front of them. It's just sometimes that success of the Olympics is about more than just being on the podium uh, and sometimes it's those other stories get overlooked because of the focus on the medals yeah completely agree and we talked a lot about that at length during uh rio last year and i mean zali i i've i've had this long-standing dream for me to be an olympian i mean clearly i think i've missed my chance now until curling comes about for me but um it's i mean i i, I would honestly yeah exactly as you were saying I would be proud as punch just to make the team. I wouldn't care if I went out there and crashed out of my race and whatever. I mean, I'm sure from a competitive standpoint, I would be somewhat. But the fact that I could always say that I'm an Olympian uh, would just be enough for me. And and it's it's something that, you know, I, I'm the same as you. I look at these amazing stories. I mean, one of my favourite moments from Sochi was, was David Morris winning the silver because, you know, just his reaction and just everything that he did in those aerials. And, I mean, we interviewed him a couple but of months also afterwards. Also, it was so unexpected. Exactly. And that story and his reaction, it was just amazing. And I mean, he's, he's one of the nicest yeah. guys I've ever interviewed and just his reactions and everything from it. And I mean, I think he got bronze, didn't he, just uh, in the last week in the World Championships? He got silver. Well. Silver, silver. There we oh, go. Last week, yes. He loves his silver. Yeah. So, no, no, last week bronze. Uh, right. It was bronze, yeah. So it's just. And this is, uh, I will say too, uh, I, I'm more of a fan, I think, of the Winter Olympics just because 
from an Australian, you know, these are sports that we we really get to see. And it's it's I always find it fascinating and like going back to what you were saying about, you know, the different events in say the Alpine skiing, you know, I mean slalom, I mean when do we get to see slalom on TV besides the Olympics? It's just such a it's such a unique and fascinating sport to me. And I would rather sit down and watch, you know, sixteen days of, of snow and skiing and people jumping over, you know, hills in the moguls and just aerials and everything, you know, than seeing people running down a hundred meter track or swimming. I mean I love the Summer Olympics but to me, Zali, give me the Winter Olympics any day of the week. Yeah, look, the winter sports have an element um, of unpredictable, of unknown to them. So, for example, people who are very familiar with summer sports will always ask, you know, what's your PB? Is there a PB? Do you have a PB? There's no such thing in most winter sports because you're never twice doing really the same conditions, you know, whereas a swimming pool tends to be a certain temperature and the, your lane is this wide and it's 50 metres long and it's going to be the same, you know. Um, it's still H2O. <laughs> um, a track is 400 metres, yes, depending on altitude and heaviness, you know, humidity, it might change a bit, but it's still essentially the same thing. Um, the difference with a lot of winter sports, or all the skiing sports anyway, um, is no two runs will ever be the same. The course, the snow will change from day to day. The hill is different for every race. Um, the setting of the gates or the pattern or the moguls or whatever the event is will be different for every race um so and, and you don't get to do it beforehand so you don't get to practice it or alpine anyway you don't get to practice it beforehand um when you get your one go at it that's it there's no yeah oh i've fallen over i'll have another go <laughs> or i'll count my second run instead that's it you have to add both times there's no there's no second chances it's all on the line it's all or nothing and so i think that's part of the excitement that's always appealed in europe that it's just quite it's exciting because it is it's an all or nothing sport um and a lot of the winter sports have an element of speed to them you know the bobsleigh the the, the luge the uh in that the downhill the, there's an element of of high speed which i think is exhilarating to watch as well uh but you don't really get that in many summer sports um so i think look i think you know i, I mean i'm a sucker for all sports i think they're <laughs> all exciting to watch i love watching people dig deep and find that extra bit of courage to just lift lift when they need to lift and whether it's lift because they've fallen over and stuffed up or lift because they're you know trying to win that medal um i i love watching that watching that sort of spirit of of seeing who can who can do it and who who can't quite make it yeah it's it's fascinating it's just it really is and um you know, it's, it's again, going back to what I was saying about how, uh, you know, we've got a Canadian base on this show again, just kind of, and it was fun doing the, the summer games last year with our co-host Colin because, uh, much, I guess, how we will be next year when we do the Winter Olympics, you know, getting excited, you know, bronze, silver, this is great, or a fourth place finish, fantastic, top 10. You know, Colin was kind of like that with Canada, like, oh, we got fourth in the race walk. That's good for Canada. Whereas, you know, going back to kind of that expectations, but um, different perspectives from different parts of the world, which makes the, the you know, both versions of the Olympics very unique. It is. And look, I think that's the joy, I guess, of when they split the winter and summer games that by having an Olympics every two years means you sort of have that sort of big event come up. And uh, it's, always, it's interesting and challenging. And look, it changes over time. I think, you know, it's important that sports do need to evolve for the difference for the audience and the markets and how it works. Um, but it's, um, yeah, look, it, it, will be, it will be exciting to watch. But the Canadians always do pretty well winter and summer. They do, um, yes. Know, I think, uh, <laughs> 
they they all they always um, hold their own. <laughs> yes, exactly. You mentioning before, obviously, uh, you know, as I said, your first Olympics in Alberville '92. Then you obviously went in Lillehammer, I and mean, that was that sort of unique period, wasn't it, where they changed the cycle of the the Winter Games. So you you kind of had two Olympics in the space of you know two years almost, and then you're having to to wait that four for 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 Nagano, which you know in between you're starting to really make a name for yourself, several top 10 finishes in the World Cup events, the first Australian to win a World Cup event just before 1998. In that sort of four-year period, do you feel at that point you're skiing at your best and this is really leading to you towards having a real crack at an Olympic medal in 1998? Yeah, look, by the time I was in that start gate in 98, it was a make or break. (laughs) (laughs) I was 23. I'd been doing it for a while and, look, I did feel like it's my third Olympics. I've had results in the top 10 on World Cup. I've, I've won a race. I'm certainly... Technically, physically, it can't doesn't get any better. Like I was at the top of my game, I was confident in my ability. I had a great team around me, really good coaches, great equipment, my skis, really happy with everything. So, in terms of ticking all the boxes, I'm feeling like right, everything is there. It's just up to you now. <laughs> um, was definitely that I did have that mindset. Um, and look, unfortunately, when the 92-94 split the, the games in Lillehammer, it was just that little bit too soon. At 17 in my first Olympics, it was a great experience to go, but I was still a bit out of my depth. Um, and so it really sort of opened my eyes as to what was going to be expected to be at that next level. Um, I was the best in Australia, but I certainly wasn't quite there as far as world standings go. Um, two years later, it was still just that little bit too soon. I was still in that process of working out the coaches and the programs, and we didn't quite have the funding in Australia yet so I was still you know I would describe it as an amateurish attempt you know in terms of being there and I was 19 and that was frustrating because you're sort of feeling like you're getting closer but you're not quite there um and and sort of 19 you can nearly feel like I nearly felt like you know the dream was slipping away in that sense that not you're not getting any younger and really that peak age for a lot of sports and I think in those kind of sports is, you know, that early 20s is very much when it's, you know, you've got everything on your side to, to make it work. So by the time I got to Nagano, I was very much feeling like I was 23. I sort of felt like I had earned my stripes. I had the experience. I'd had the disappointments, you know, of learning, of having big races go wrong and falling. And uh, But I'd also had races go well. Um, so I felt mentally really ready. I'd ticked all the boxes um, and, you know, if it was going to happen, well, this is where it needed to happen. So I think by the time I was in that start gate, I was really ready to, <laughs> ready to ski. And then, but then the trick is you, you can't let all that get on top of you. You've got to find a way of clearing your mind and actually being feeling free enough to risk it because if you let the expectations or the, you know, the years of building towards the result weigh you down then it's not going to happen you're not going to be free enough to race fast so you've you, you've always got to be prepared to lose it you know you've got to be prepared to put it on the line which is a tough thing to do when it's been a long time coming and a lot of a lot of training but look, by the time I got to 98 I, I was ready uh it was it was time uh, and I was just really lucky that it all came together for me and amazingly you've got you know I've got friends on the circuit that probably got more success at World Cup in terms of top 10 results but but could never quite in their whole careers manage to pull it together for world champs or Olympics. So never got that big event result, but got more consistent results than I got. So 
you know, it's interesting when you walk away from a sporting career, what are the results that make you, you know, what do you consider to be a success and what, what does it take to look back on a sporting career and think of it as being a, a great success? Uh, you know, it's a bit, I think it's different for everybody, but I was just really lucky that it all came together for me in those years, 98, 99. And then, unfortunately, I sort of, you know, every sporting career has to come back down <laughs> at some point. I, no one ever wants to recognize that, but sooner or later you do. Uh, and I just had a series of events where, you know, I got I got a bit of um, glandular fever and I got a bit, uh, I had a sort of niggly injuries one year and, you know, coaches changed and couldn't quite find the right coaches again. And, um, you know, just little things that change the, change the dynamic or the energy around you and all of a sudden you're just not quite getting it right and you're getting a bit older and, you know, your, your focus starts to be a bit different. So, um, look, it's just, it is one of those reminders that sometimes in your life everything falls into place and, you know, you'll get, and whether it's sport or whether it's business or career or education or family and kids, you've got, sometimes you just get those golden patches where it's all great. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the lesson is that you've just got to learn to make the most of it, you know, go, grab that with two hands and enjoy it because there are always going to be other times, you know, I certainly through my skiing, there were plenty of years building up to those couple of years that were great. And then there were a couple of years that weren't so great that were really hard to, really hard to handle. Um, but, you know, and, and life since hasn't been all roses, you know, there's always been, it's always, you know, highs and lows, but it is learning to enjoy it when you've got everything going for you is, you know, take the moment and enjoy it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's very inspirational, there, Alex. Sorry, I'm just I'm just taken by the moment there, but it's um, it's. I mean, I I, I mean, I even remember the 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 event in '98 though too. I mean, you go, sort of going back to what you're saying there in regards to like, it's, each course is different. You don't get to really ski it until you're there on the the event day. So many people were crashing out in in that event in '98, and it was it seemed that i mean i remember again watching it live as i was saying to you before we started recording it just the the commentators were shocked they're like so many people are crashing this is this is disastrous what's going on i mean was there something about that course or was it the conditions i mean what was it really that was leading so many people at that uh, that moment to just not finish and when you're seeing this uh, i mean is this does this affect you does this kind of do you have to put that in the back of your mind thinking no that's not going to happen to me i mean how does that all work in the in the lead up to that you know look after the first run i was in third place and i think i only had like 100 or 300 to the second before fourth place so i had nothing you know there's no lead there's no safety at all and you have to wait about three hours before you go back up and do the second run and the second run is a new set so it's a new course being set by a different coach and you get to go and look at it and slide it but then you have to race it and they reverse the order in the second run so all the girls that were behind me in the first run had, were going ahead of us and I remember it was a really beautiful sunny day and it was quite warm so the snow was getting quite soft um, and the second run had actually been um, set by the German coach uh, and I used to uh, travel and train with the German coach so we had been training courses that he had been setting all week as a warm-up and he actually had uh, <laughs> ironically the girl who ended up winning Hilda um, he was going out with her wow. <laughs> so, so <laughs> but anyway so that's that's an aside but um, they um, she really liked tight courses so his pattern of setting the gates was always a very tight turny course very quick rhythm very very tight um, and so we had been training really tight courses all week so we were very much used to that pattern so of course when he set the race he set what was going to suit 
you know, the German girls and what we'd been training. So I was just really lucky that, you know, that was also going to suit me. Um, and look, I actually didn't know that everyone was having so much trouble because the coaches always, I had a serviceman up in the start with me and I had my coach down on the hill and they always, you know, they've got the radios and they're talking about who's, how they go. And you get a course report about five people before you, you're due to go. And the course report was, you know, it's tight, it's turning, just go for it. <laughs> um, it was he didn't tell me that people were having trouble on this gate or that gate. All he said was, look, it's tight. You're going to have to be quick and just, you know, it's like in training. It's quick, it's tight, go for it. Um, because at the end of the day, you've got no time to think. If you've, got, if, you've got, if you've got time to think, you're going too slow. The race is already over. So it has to happen in, instinctively. And that course, I remember well, that run was really tight and you absolutely had to be on your toes to to stay with the rhythm of the pattern of gates and I remember a lot of girls were falling because they were they weren't quick enough and so as the pattern would catch up with them they gradually you know got later and later and came out um, and the snow was a bit soft so it was you know getting a bit rushy and it was a bit harder to do but to be honest I had no trouble from top to bottom I did that run with absolutely no trouble I've looked looked at it you know after and it was it was fine so for me, you know, I got got to bottom not really knowing that so many people had been having so much trouble. So, uh, you know, blissful ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> blissful ignorance. That's a good way of looking at it. I, I'm sure, I mean, this is a question that you've been, you've answered so many times, but I mean, that moment, you, you cross the line. Obviously, you cross the line in first place. You've only got two people afterwards. As you mentioned, you've got Hilda and, of course, the great Deborah Compagnoni to come straight after you. But crossing that line in first guarantees you a medal. No matter what, you've won a medal. Uh, how is that feeling, Zach? At that point, you are an Olympic medalist no matter what happens. I, I can't imagine that's even a feeling you can really put into words. Yeah, look, that was huge. I mean, because, you know, the first run's a bit of a dream come true in that you're there, you're in the hunt. You know, after I've been at two Olympics, have not been great, I've had world champs, not been great. Um, you know, you've finished your first run, you're in, third place, you're in the hunt, you're in the race. So you know you're, you're a contender, and but you can't really let your mind drift ahead to, oh, my God, I could actually do this because I had fourth place absolutely breathing down my neck. So there was no point in getting ahead of myself. And then that weight you have where you really have to stop yourself from thinking. You can't think about the fact that this might just happen, you know, this dream that you sort of all these years it's taken so long. Um, so then that moment when you cross the finishing line, there's just first that huge sense of relief that you've made it to the finish line, you know, that <laughs> you're down. Um, and then it's sort of, look, I, I do really vividly remember that sense of, I had a real inner sense of inner quiet in the sense that the, the crowd was clearly very noisy, but for me in my head, I really didn't hear anything until I turned around and saw the board. And then when I saw on the board that I was first, so I hadn't lost any ground, then I could hear the crowd and the noise and, and, and um, yeah, look, it was a great moment. And, you know, and, and I can honestly say it didn't really stop and think of colour or anything. For me, it was just such a moment of you did it in terms of after all those years, all that training, all the disappointments, so many, so many times where I could have given it away. Um, and I do remember standing before the start of the race thinking, Why, right, if this is ever going to happen, it's going to be now. Um, you know, if I'm meant to have a medal, then it's going to have to be today that I do it. Um, it doesn't get any better than this in terms of preparation and training and everything. So, it, you know, you sort of nearly, yeah, I had sort of, you have to pause that thought from when you first have it first thing in the morning <laughs> till you've done your first run, you've waited, you've done your second run, and then finally when you, you know, I saw the scoreboard, it was that 
Right, I did. <laughs> it was today. Um, so, yeah, look, and I was really lucky too. My, my parents were there, my brother was there, and it was just such a, it was such a great day. And that's why for me, you know, the colour really was completely irrelevant on the day <laughs> because the hundreds of a second here or there, you know, you, you don't, you can't control it. You can only control how you ski. You can't control how the other competitors ski. So the fact that the Deborah and Hilda got that little bit faster down than me, you know, all I was happy with was that I was that much faster than fourth place. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think fourth place was Martina Urschel, who was a good friend in German skiers. So, <laughs> um, you know, it was, you know, you, you've just, I always considered it to be so you're so privileged to be one of the three. Yeah. And I mean, I sort of, I touched on it before in, in the introduction, but I mean, for those listening who might not know, I guess, kind of what came with that medal, I mean, the bronze, as I said, uh, you were the first individual medalist uh, in, in Winter Olympics for Australia, the second ever winter medal won by Australia, the first female uh, medalist uh, by Australia. And to this day, you are the only Australian to have ever medaled in the sport of alpine skiing. I mean, does, does that sort of, does the history mean much to you then, Zali, that you kind of created that history and, and held that? And, and I guess too, as you were kind of mentioning, I guess your, your medal win then also spurred more funding and everything along those lines that helped, you know, push our winter program into what we've got today. Yeah, look, at the time, I probably didn't appreciate that. I can look back on that now and realise it is. Look, and, and I've been really privileged that I've been, you know, nominated in the Sports Hall of Fame and I'm, uh, sorry, inducted in the Sports Hall of Fame and I'm in the, you know, the the Hall of um, Fame in New South Wales as well. And and you do, in that opportunity to make sporting history is great. You know, as, as I get older and I look back that it's been 20 years, <laughs> um, it's nice to know that you've got something like that to, um, you know, to hang out. <laughs> but it's, um, look, at the time, it was a big moment. Also, you know, for me, I guess I looked at it from a personal point of view that it had been such a long journey um, that to me it was such a vindication of, of the self-belief I'd had that it was possible, that I, I did have what it takes to make it. Um, so it was such, for me, that really, the, the initial feeling was very much that self-vindication that I'd been right to persevere all those times. Um, but then, of course, the the realization of what it meant for us as a you know as a country, and I think it it did spur on the next maybe era of our involvement in winter sports, where we became we we did go into a much more professional setup of having more funding, and um, and you know and that's when the OWIA got created, and it did create that whole next sort of next era, I think, of winter sports. Um, and uh, so it's kind of funny when you sort of then think, oh, we were sort of pioneers of it. And <laughs> I tend to think that it was more the Malcolm Millen era that was the, <laughs> the pioneers of skiing. But um, look, it, it, it did mean a lot. And I look back on it now, it's something that can never be taken away. So, uh, you know, I, it, it is a really rewarding to have that um, and to know that sort of you know that you, you, it, it, it's just an amazing privilege to get that opportunity to do it it's not something that everyone gets to do and I really appreciate that um, you know I was extremely lucky and you know sometimes so many things can go right or wrong that you have no control over mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. 
um, it, it, it is it is fantastic. I, I, it's crazy to think that it was twenty years ago. I don't feel twenty years older. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it is crazy. I mean, it's kind of what I was saying to you a little bit off air about my fanboying aspect of this, Ali. Because I mean, as I said to you, I mean, I, I watched this event live for some reason. I wasn't at school. Uh, maybe you have to ask my parents why. As an eleven year old, I wasn't at school. Uh, but I mean, I, I taped it on VHS. Oh, I, it was a Saturday. It was it was a, it was a Saturday. Well, there you go. No, That's why. No, no, it was a Friday. Well, Friday. well, Friday. well but it was there's something Japanese there. Time, so it was evening. It was dinner time. Okay, well, there you go. That's maybe why I remember watching it. I wasn't at school. But, um, yeah, I mean, I have it on VHS. I, I've transferred it across to my computer now, and I was legitimately watching it uh, in the lead-up to this again because I might not have watched it in, in 12 months. But, I mean, it's just it's crazy to think, and this is, again, that fanboy aspect that 20 years later, here I am speaking to you because I, I watched that so much, Al. You have no idea how much I watched that after you won that bronze because I was so excited for you and so happy at that moment. Oh, well, look, well, thank you. Well, it's, it's been fun. and It's funny in the different ways in which it maybe touches people too in that already after the 92 Olympics, I had people write to me at the time saying, oh, you know, we've called our daughter Zali after you. Wow. We saw your name in the paper. We really liked it. And, um, and I certainly got quite a few after each Olympics, especially after 98. Um, and so there's a whole generation of Zalis out there, you know, <laughs> that are about that age. Wow. Um, so it, it is really cute. Look, I, I, I've, you know, I've been a bit of a mentor towards that you know we've got a Zali who ski races who's now about 18 or 19 <laughs> <laughs> she came along after Nagano so you know it's um uh, yeah look it's just it's it's a it is an amazing opportunity and and, and um you know and, and I think look athletes and sports sports heroes sometimes get it right and sometimes get it wrong as we well know but you know, no one sets about to disappoint and everyone is there putting it on the line, trying to do their best. And, and it is so motivating when you see people, when it all just comes together for people on the day. And I think that's why sport appeals to so many people, why it's so moving, is that it does. It just, you know, it gets that adrenaline pumping and it gets, it draws you in because of that sort of that belief that, I don't know. Fairy tales do come true. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. I always like to ask um, whenever we have a medalist on the show, I mean, what, what do you do with the medal then? I mean, is some people keep it in their sock drawer apparently. I mean, do you have it on display? Please tell me you have it on display at least, Arlie. <laughs> no, I don't. No. Look, <laughs> um, no, I don't because I have, with all my kids, I've done a fair few show and tells and speech days and stuff like that. So I do occasionally, you know, if I'm going speaking to schools and stuff, I will take it with the World Chance Medal. Um, look, no, I've never really put it on display. I've put the odd, odd torches and I've got a little bit of memorabilia up, but very little, to be honest. Um, most of most of it my parents sort of hold on to. Um, but look, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 the symbol is not in the in the medal or in the trophy. <laughs> it's more in the memory. Sure. That's, that's a good way of looking at it. I like that explanation. I mean, I mean, after Nagano, of course, I mean, you did go on to further success, you know, more World Cup wins, podium finishes. I mean, going into Salt Lake that ultimately would be your last Olympics. Also, a little bit more expectation, I guess, from an Australian viewing perspective. The media, I guess, were probably a bit more focused on you maybe than they were four years ago, given that you had won the medal. I mean, did you go into Salt Lake, you know, thinking that you could go better? I mean, how was your mentality going into that four years later? No, look, it was weird. I had, a, I had quite a horrible time, actually, leading into Salt Lake, where I was having, I was really struggling with... Um, Skiing really well in training, really well in lower races, winning easily. But then I was getting to World Cups and I was trying too hard. Basically, I was I was having sleepless nights the night before because I'd be so worked up and so um, 
sort of trying to, to do well. Um, and then I would get to the race and I'd be nervously exhausted because I had barely slept the night before. Um, and so it was just sort of unraveling. And the harder I tried to hold on to it all, the more it unraveled on me, basically, which is a horrible, you know, I look back on it now and I think there's probably so many other things I could have done to, to maybe, you know, I need probably, look, I think the writing was on the wall that I needed a break. I was so caught up in it that I couldn't, I wasn't free enough to put it on the line anymore. And if you can't, if you're not prepared to lose, you can't win. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound silly, but it is how it works. And I was so, um, I wanted the results so badly um, that you could, I, I wasn't free enough to, to ski fast when it came to the big events. And um, when I got to Salt Lake, I had decided that I'd had enough. Um, I'd been racing for, uh, 30, was it, I was 27, so 13 years internationally, for, uh, 13 years, so 26 winters in a row. I'd never had a summer. Um, I'd never been injured, so I'd never missed a year. Um, so I started racing when I was five and pretty much raced my entire life from then um, and then from the age of 14 to 27 raced Australian winters and European winters. So I just, I was tired is the best way I can describe it I wasn't broken physically I had no injuries but mentally I was tired I just couldn't quite maintain it anymore uh, and uh, so by the time I got to Salt Lake I had decided that that was enough um, but you know the hardest part I think for athletes is always to know when it is time to call it a day um, and usually either injury does it for you um, or results do it for you and you know I think it's, it's, it's always going to be really hard and bittersweet because because you've been, you've, so much of your life has been focused on something and all of a sudden, even though you're still really good at it, you've got to decide to shut that off and go and do something else. Um, and, and so it's, it takes, you know, it, it's a really tough decision to, to take. But I, by the time I got to 2002, I was just, I was quite tired. Mentally, I think emotionally, I was just tired. And the best thing that could have happened for me would have probably been to take a year off and then come back, um, just have a break. Um, but look, in those days I didn't really think that that was possible I had two coaches that were employed you know to support me and if I'm not racing well what happens to them and there was a lot of sort of responsibility that came with it so I think it was a combination of a lot of factors that made Salt Lake kind of difficult but ironically in the end because it was going to be my and that was my last ever race I've never done a slalom since so it's it's still a bit bittersweet really when I think back to it um, I had an absolutely sleepless night the night before I could not go to sleep um, so by the time I got to the race in the morning it was very much a right this is your last one you've got to just enjoy it you've got to put it on the line and ironically I'd been having a horrible World Cup season and I was actually doing really well in the run. Um, the conditions were atrocious. The snow was rotten. It was uh, that kind of soft, wet snow underneath, and they'd put uh, chemicals on top to try and make it go hard, and it had basically broken through a crust of ice with soft underneath. So it was just horrible conditions. And I had about a mid-20 start number where by the time I went, the ruts were huge and the conditions <laughs> were just atrocious. Um, but I remember absolutely putting it all on the line. And I think, you know, by the time I came, I fell about five gates from the finish, feeling completely out of control because I was trying so desperately to go fast through these ruts. Um, and ironically, my split times were really good. I, I was actually really in the hunt compared to everyone else due to the conditions. And uh, so once, you know, you pick yourself up out of the snow, there's a huge sense of disappointment. And for me, it was also that sense of, 
you know, wow, that's it. That's the shutting of the door. I, I'm usually a person that stands by my word. So, you know, if I've said that was it, that's my last right, that's it. That's it. Um, and so to feel that that was the way I was going to go out was initially really, really crushing. But then I sort of felt, you know what, it, it isn't because I went out giving it everything. I, you know, I, I fell because I, I caught an edge. I flew off to the side. It wasn't, you know, I didn't, there was no quitting. There was no giving up. It was just, you know, bad luck, uh, but putting it all on the line. And, and that's sort of what ultimately I, I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, so Salt Lake was really, you know, disappointing in that sense. But I think by the time, you know, when, once the disappointment of the actual race sort of wore off in, in that that was over, um, I was emotionally so tired <laughs> that, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it, it was time to, time to hang up the skis. Time to hang up the skis. And as you were saying, like, no summer. I mean, you're from Manly. I mean, come on, you deserve a summer at least. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it was summers. It was friends. It was, you know, it was just, it was very, it was a very isolated lifestyle. And like I said, it's before the days of Facebook and the, inst- you know, in- internet and mobile phones. And, you know, the world is such a more connected place now than what it was then. And so you just didn't have that, you know, the, the, the support around you of your friend, you know, like my friends followed me, but from a distance, like everything was sort of hard. So by then I was 27 and I felt like, you know, it was time to move on to a new challenge. I felt like I'd been there, done that, and it's time to find something new to do. Mm, and you've definitely done that. I mean, you know, post-retirement, you know, a uh, highly prominent barrister there in Sydney, you know, you become a, you become a mother, you're married, you're leading a very successful life. I mean, I mean, how... How is Bizarrely Stegel's life 2.0, I guess? You've had, you know, skiing part one, now you've got Barrister part two. Is it a different form of adrenaline rush and all that sort of stuff as opposed to when you were an athlete? It, totally. And and look, for me, the um, I remember in my press conference in Salt Lake City, I got asked, you know, what was the highlight of my life? And I said, well, look, I really hope I haven't had it yet because I'm 27 and there's a few years to go and I really hope there's still a highlight. You know, yes, yeah. Um, the opportunity to be, uh, you know, have an Olympic sporting career is fantastic and I've been really blessed in terms of getting those results. But I certainly hope there's going to be more, you know, that my life has got, still got, you know, you don't want to feel like that's, that's, that's the highlight. <laughs> um, so for me, it was really important to find a new challenge. And I think it is really difficult for athletes to move on from sporting careers. I think so many years of focusing on excellence, on, on, on achieving success, it's really hard to walk away, but it's also really hard to find contentment in, and I, I say lesser things without being, you know, pejorative. I, it, it's lesser things in the sense that you're not going for Olympic gold medals, but every goal that you go for is important to the person that's going for it. So you're not always going to get recognition for everything you, you, you're aiming for. And you have to learn to adjust to that, to learn to adjust that the media and um you know, the public is not going to care about every goal you're going for, but it doesn't mean it matters any less to you and your development. So it was really important for me when I retired to find something that was going to be really challenging. Uh, so I decided to completely move away from sport um, uh, and have a career in law. Um, and I started absolutely from the beginning. You know, I was a receptionist. I, did, I was a paralegal. I, uh, there was no glamour in what I was doing. <laughs> um, I, I started from the bottom. There was no, you know, no special doors opened for me. Um, and, but 
I think it's really important to do it that way because that's the way you had to come up through your sport. So there's no reason why you shouldn't have to come up through your professional career in exactly the same way. Um, and look, I was really keen to have kids. So I was really lucky to have, um, uh, I had my two boys um, and then uh, remarried and, you know, had a big family with lots of kids. So that's really challenging in itself. I always, I used to say that, you know, with kids, it's a gold medal every day <laughs> when you get to the end of the day and everything has gone well. Um it's busy and, it, you know, it's always a challenge. But I think as long as you're challenged, then, then it's fun. It's, I think it's the minute that there's no challenge that it stops being, um, stops being interesting. It's a very good way of looking at it. I mean, and with those challenges, I mean, uh, this year too, I believe you've, you've been, uh, you're going to be hearing uh, cases in the Court of Arbitration of Sport too. I mean, you're the first Winter Olympic medalist, I believe, to be on this panel and it's only sort of a, a recent role that you've been appointed to. I mean, this, this, is, this sounds pretty, pretty big. I mean, how did this come about? How do you feel about this? Yeah, look, I've been really lucky. Um, I got involved clearly, you know, the connection of sports and law, and uh, I've done quite a bit over the years with the um, National Federation Appeals Panel for the Olympic Committee where athletes that have missed out on selection have a process of appealing, um, whether it's in sort of the interpretation of the rules or how they've been applied. And I've, I've participated in that as counsel, but also as, I guess, adjudicator in terms of determining those appeals. And I found it really interesting for me that it combines my, you know, I have, I certainly have understanding and affinity for the athletes because I've been there, but I do look at it also from my legal perspective of understanding the, the construction and the, 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 the factors that need to be taken into account. Um, so I've, I've, I've really enjoyed that combining of sort of the various sides of my life, um, in, in being able to give back to sport in that way. Um, and uh, it, it, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the appointments been, was, you know, I was really, really flattered that um, I was considered and um, and uh, and uh, appointed in the, in that way. And I and I really look forward to be able to give back to sort of the sport and um, sport and and maybe help athletes through that process. Um, I think as an individual athlete, I was forced to be very hands-on in my process you know like I was very involved in my programs I was I was already an athlete representative on the board of the OWIA I I was in very involved I think more so than what most athletes normally are so I had that I was lucky to, to have that um, experience of sort of both sides you know I, I saw behind the curtain as to how the team worked and how you the funding and the programs and all that so um, it was really good to have an opportunity to put all that experience together in terms of helping sports. And um, I, you know, went um, on a couple of boards as well, which helped me, gives me that opportunity to, to give back to the sports. And, you know, I've gone back to being on the board of the Olympic Winter Institute, which I really enjoy because that's, again, that planning the, the and, and helps sort of, um, you know, giving something back to, to the next generations and the programs. Um, and so, look, uh, yeah, I've been really lucky in terms of um, opportunities. I've, I've, you know, I think I've worked hard. <laughs> and, uh, uh, every day in front of a judge is nerve-wracking. It's like standing at the start of a, start of a race. You don't, you're not quite sure how it's going to go. <laughs> and you're going to do the best you can. Uh, you always try to prepare as, be as best you can and, and, and hope that you're going to be able to you know, think on your feet and do the best possible for your clients. Um, and that's at the end of the day. I think that's you know what I like about I guess my profession is that it is quite stimulating and challenging in that way. 
Um, but yeah, so we'll we'll see. see how it's it fun. Goes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just before we let you go, Zali, uh, next year, uh, as we said, twenty years. Uh, I've just looked at it here. It's February the nineteenth. Are there going to be any plans, perhaps February 19, 2018, that you might just sit down, have a quiet little quiet little drink, put the medal around your neck, maybe put it on the TV and just just reflect on it that you know it's been now that anniversary of it. Uh, look, my, actually, my husband Tim and I were talking about it that we're um, really keen to um, take the kids to Japan next year. Actually, to go go back over to Nagano and up to Shigakogen. Um, so, really keen to to take them there. I think it's it's a it's a trip down memory lane for me more than them. But <laughs> <laughs> they don't care half as much. But I, I probably will do that just to. Um, to, to be to be totally honest, my um, my husband is the one who's the most proud, um, and who tends to be the most sentimental about um, <laughs> milestones and things like that. And he, even though he didn't know me back in those days, he is very um, he's always the one who really you know is very proud and sort of brings out the you know the memories of of the past and the accomplishments. That's great. That's great. Well, I'm I'm, t- I'm saying that all our listeners, whether you're in Australia, Canada, wherever you are, February nineteenth, two thousand and eighteen, I'm officially declaring International Zali Stegel Day. So everybody can go out there <laughs> and and join in with the celebrations and commemorate such a momentous day in Australian sporting history. Thank you very much, <laughs> Sally. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today, and best of luck with everything. And uh, thank you very much for uh, taking us through your your crew today. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Such a pleasure. Not going to keep talking it up because you heard me in the intro. You heard me throughout the interview. I'm still fanboying just uh, being able to bring this to you. So, once again, big thanks to Zali. And uh, perhaps we'll get her on the show maybe moving forward in uh, the next 12 months when it comes to talking a little bit more about uh, Pyeongchang and getting more of a, a preview in regards to that. And speaking of previews, uh, we, we, we've said in a few of these interviews that we're hoping to get the gang together, Jared and Colin and myself all together to talk about Pyeongchang, to talk about Commonwealth Games, to talk about everything else. In, in between here and off the podium. Jared hasn't been on an episode since Rio and we're looking forward to bringing him back. So that's in the pipeworks. Stay tuned. We hope to be able to bring you that very, very soon. And as I kind of kind of mentioned in our Catherine Skinner interview as well, uh, stay tuned for some classic interviews that have been done over the years. Uh, sort of, as I mentioned, through my former radio ventures, I've interviewed several Olympic athletes and we're going to bring those interviews to you kind of like as a opening the vault, so to speak, and while not necessarily current in terms of what they will talk about, it's still fun to be able to revisit these chats that personally I've had with Olympic athletes and that have always ranked up there with some of my favourite interviews uh, throughout my career. So stay tuned for those. Stay tuned to our Facebook page, Off The Podium Podcast. It's where you go. Like us on there and you can stay up to date with everything. Send us a message on there. We'd always, of course, love to hear from you. And iTunes is the way to go to get these podcasts. Remember to rate and subscribe as well as leave us feedback. We always like to see what you think. And uh, other podcasting services coming soon. We'll stay up to date with those as we keep going on. Colin, too, has some interviews that he's got underway, and they will be coming your way to your speakers very, very soon for that uh, added Canadian perspective. It's great to kind of get two sides as we uh, really give you a a multi-international podcast on the Olympics, which is what the Olympics are about. International, bringing the world together. We're doing that through a podcast. So... You're welcome, podcasting world. We're out of here. My name's Ben. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks once again to Zali, and we'll speak to you next time here on Off the Podium. Podcast.